0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphagia, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, as we picture this scene, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, as we ask ourselves, Who is this? Lord, give us the grace to see that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. and Give us the grace to hear his word to us now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not one of those people who likes to dig too deeply into the meaning of every little word in the Bible, the significance of every name, because you can really get lost in the weeds because literally everything has some kind of meaning. If you dig into it, there's always some kind of a hint, and then you're you're asking yourself, is this significant or is it just a coincidence or what have you? But as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, it's interesting to think about some of the traditions that explain the name of the city. As a shorthand, Jerusalem, the city, it means the city of peace, the city of peace. But we can get more specific about this. There are rabbinic traditions associated with the naming. Of this city, the the first part of the name, the Jeru part, comes from the Hebrew Yera, or if you grew up in the Southern Church, Jireh, as in Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. That phrase may be familiar to you because these are the words spoken by Abraham when he's called upon to sacrifice Isaac and God provides another sacrifice, Abraham names that place, the Lord provides. The Lord provides. That passage from Genesis 22 provides that first part of the name. The second part, of course, is is Salem, or Shalem, or, or, or peace, Shalom. A place of peace. Originally, uh, Salem, as you know, again, in the book of Genesis, that was the seat of the high priest Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem. In some Jewish rabbinic traditions, they associate Melchizedek with Shem, the son of Noah. So you have, uh, the Lord will provide peace or shalom. And interestingly, Jesus is the sacrifice that God provides for our sin. Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who, in the words of our last memory verse, makes peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, verse 20. Jesus is the peace that God provides, in other words. And in Matthew 21, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city of peace, to fulfill the meaning of its name. To make it live up to its name. Jerusalem, the city of peace. Which seems like anything but these days. It seems like a dreadful irony To call Jerusalem the city of peace when it seems as if Jerusalem is destined for conflict generation after generation. There's a tension when we think about Jerusalem between the name and the meaning of the name and the reality that we seem to see throughout history. That tension is one that you also see in Matthew 21 as well. There is a tension in the triumphal entry between the dreams of a physical, political kingdom, a physical, political savior, and the reality of a spiritual, cosmic kingdom. That's a tension that we need to ponder because it's a tension that we still live in today. Our hopes are still divided when we come to scripture, when we come to Jesus, oftentimes even now we're still looking for something different than what he's come to provide. So what I want to do as we think about the triumphal entry is think about that tension, to think about the 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 tension inherent in this moment in the story. Because on the one hand, it's all been leading up to this. The triumphal entry is a time of fulfillment. The way that Matthew describes it makes it clear that the pieces are falling into place. This was meant to be. And that makes it clear that this is the real thing. right? That this entry is the entry of the true king. He is the one who was promised. He is the Christ, the Messiah. But on the other hand... On the other hand, this isn't what you think. This isn't what they expected. Jesus defied their expectations, and all too often, he defies ours as well. So on the one hand, it's all been leading up to this, but on the other, it's not what you think. Those are the two tensions that we're going to explore. So first, it's all been leading up to this. The triumphal entry is the fulfillment of prophecy, And in Matthew's gospel, that's really, really clear. I mean, if you take your Bible, just do this uh, little little experiment, physical thing here. So if your Bible, like mine, is open to Matthew 21, then all you have to do is go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel. So that's right here for me. It doesn't look like a lot, but as you know, this is uh, a couple of years worth of pages now that we have... Preached our way to this point. Everything that started here now comes to fruition here. It's all been leading up to this in Matthew's gospel, but we can go farther. If you take your Bible and you go all the way back to the beginning, everything from here to here has all been leading up to this. Literally everything in the Bible from Genesis 1 1 to this moment has all been leading up to the time when Jesus enters the city of peace in order to make peace through his sacrifice. If you think about the gospel of Matthew and just remember the highlights, it should be obvious. Matthew begins with the genealogy of the king and then the birth of the king. And as we saw, all of it is very self-consciously framed in language of kingship. We get his baptism, which looks a lot like a kingly anointing. And straight after his baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness and confronts our great enemy, Satan, and defeats him in the wilderness and forever after runs roughshod over his kingdom. As his ministry proceeds, Jesus proclaims his kingdom, its arrival, its nature, how it's different from everything that went before until finally in Matthew 16, Peter confesses you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the one that we've been waiting for. And then once that happens, a journey begins. We're on our way to Jerusalem in order for Jesus to get to this moment right here, where he enters the city and is welcomed as its king. But that march started a lot sooner than Matthew chapter 1. It goes all the way back, as I said to the beginning. In particular, it goes back to the end of the Old Testament, to the prophetic Era that we studied before we looked at Matthew's gospel when we went through the book of Zechariah. If you go to an Old Testament history, there are some things, some of them are mentioned by Matthew, others are not, that make it really clear that this was all meant to be. This is exactly what we've been waiting for, that everything has been leading up to this. I mentioned last week that Jesus's entry Reminds me not just of Joshua, but also Jehu, because Jehu was that great king that when they crowned him went to war immediately and didn't even wait for his army. He just encountered enemies along the way and said, you guys be my army. And they all fell in behind him as he advanced. Well, Jesus resembles Jehu in another way as well. If you look in second Kings chapter (laughs) nine, Jehu has one of the most unusual crowning uh, ceremonies ever. The, the guy who's sent to tell him he's king is told to run away immediately after you do this because stuff's going to get real. And it does. Uh, immediately, uh, we read these words in, this is uh, 2 Kings nine thirteen. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So here we have documented this kind of ritual tradition. An acknowledgement of kingship is to take off your cloak and to throw it down on the ground as if you're you're upholstering the ground on which this new king will walk. At the triumphal entry, the disciples cover the, the mount with their cloaks and the crowds throw their cloaks into the street as Jesus enters, clearly acknowledging his kingship. Psalm 118 is really significant in this passage, and I want you to hear a portion of Psalm 118 now. We're going to look at Psalm 118, verses 19 through 27. Even if uh, the number 118 does not conjure anything in your mind, when you hear these words, some of them will be familiar to you. So listen to this. "'Open to me the gates of righteousness "'that I may enter through them "'and give thanks to the Lord. "'This is the gate of the Lord. "'The righteous shall enter through it. "'I thank you that you have answered me "'and have become my salvation. "'The stone that the builders rejected "'has become the cornerstone. "'This is the Lord's doing. "'It is marvelous in our eyes. "'This is the day that the Lord has made. "'Let us rejoice and be glad in it. "'Save us, we pray, O Lord.'" O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now you'll hear some familiar words in there, but in context, as you listen to that, what does that sound like? To me, it sounds like liturgy. I can almost picture the scene, the progress, entering in through the gates, being admitted into the gates, going into the temple precincts until finally we reach the altar. These are words that accompany actions of the people of God. A priest king entering the city, the gates thrown open to him as he goes to the temple to make a sacrifice. And indeed, scholars believe that Psalm 118 was written for just such an occasion, the restoration and rededication of the restored temple in the days of Ezra and Zerubbabel. When the temple was rebuilt and restored in passages, we looked at, as we studied Zechariah, this was the liturgy for that service. That's the belief. Now, later in Matthew 21, Jesus himself is going to quote from this psalm. He'll quote that line, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But here, it's the crowds who are singing it. The crowds, when they say, save us, we pray, O Lord. If you look at the triumphal entry and you try to find that line, you may say to yourself, no, I don't see it. They're not saying that. You're wrong. Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna is what they're saying. That's what those words mean. Save us, we pray. Hosanna, O Lord, save us, we pray. Over time, that phrase became a sort of uh, stock phrase in worship. It meant something like, obviously, save us, but something like uh, the way people say, like, God save the king, or, or bless you, or something like that. Like words people would use often. In worship, Hosanna, here, given their original significance, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are singing Psalm 118 to welcome him, which is fascinating if you consider that 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 priest king from the days of Zechariah is Jesus, and that this is essentially the soundtrack of his entry into Jerusalem. When the temple was restored in the days of Zerubbabel, they had this service of dedication, and then immediately afterwards, they celebrated Passover, which is exactly what's about to happen here. That connection to those days of Zerubbabel, though, is made really clear by Matthew when he quotes the the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, he quotes a specific part of it. We're going to read a little bit more just to to remind you of some of the details. These would have been familiar to Matthew's readers probably more so than they are to us, even though I, I preached through Zechariah uh, right before we did Matthew. So some of you, I'm sure, this will uh, immediately spring to mind. I'm being sarcastic, of course. I know. It's been a while. It's been a while. But in Zechariah... Chapter nine, starting in verse nine, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the part that that is significant for Matthew. But it goes on. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Your king is coming to save you, so rejoice. Those are the words of Zechariah fulfilled in the triumphal entry. Now, Matthew connects the detail of of the mount, the, the donkey in order to, to seal the deal, to make it really clear that down to the details, this is the fulfillment. But, but it's not just the, the, the details or the orchestration of the scene that's significant. Jesus does what Zechariah prophesied the coming priest king would do. The triumphal entry fulfills Zechariah's prophecy about the messianic king. And note the details. He will speak peace to the nations. He will set prisoners free because of the blood of my covenant with you. So Zechariah is saying that this messianic king will achieve peace through sacrifice, which is what Jesus has been telling his disciples all along as they've approached Jerusalem. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, not just in the way that he rides into town, but in all that he's come to accomplish while he's there. Interestingly, even in the historical books of the Apocrypha, not scripture, not inspired, but interesting books nevertheless recording the history of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are details that are significant for the triumphal entry. In uh, the book of Maccabees, for example, if you're not familiar with the history, Maccabees is a chronicle of the Jewish people uh, rising up against these Hellenic invaders and throwing off the yoke of oppression. And so in First Maccabees chapter 13, there's an episode where uh, the city of Jerusalem is retaken when they finally drive out the last of the conquerors. Simon the high priest enters into the city, they say, with thanksgiving and branches of palm trees and with harps and cymbals and with veals and hymns and songs because there was destroyed a great enemy out of Israel. So when the city was retaken and restored, one of the things they did was cut off these palm branches and throw those into the streets in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verse 7, this is after the great desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, when they restore the temple and they rededicate it, uh, they take branches and palms and sing psalms unto him that had given them good success in cleansing this place. So the spreading of palms historically is accompanied by these restorations of Jerusalem, and of the temple, people at the triumphal entry who knew their scripture, people at the triumphal entry who knew their history appreciated the significance of what was happening down to the very details. It was unmistakable. Jesus is the promised priest king. He is the Messiah. He has come to restore peace to the city of peace through a victorious sacrifice. All of that should have been clear, clearer to them than it is to us. All of this was meant to be. This is what everything was leading up to. But this wasn't what they expected. Despite all that knowledge, this wasn't what they were hoping for. This wasn't what they thought. And in some ways, it's not what we think either. It all has to do with illusions and frustrations. Whenever people get really excited about politics, when people put a lot of hope in political leaders, their rhetoric always outpaces any realistic possibility of what can be delivered. I'm a cynical person by nature. I'm sure that surprises you to learn. But uh, I tend to have a pessimistic view of these things. One thing I always know for certain where politics are concerned is that the more enthusiastic you are today about your candidate, the more disillusioned you will be down the road when reality sets in. You thought you were getting hope and change, and you ended up with the status quo. You thought you were going to drain the swamp and the water levels have never been higher. And cynics like me say, I told you so. This is what's always going to happen when you put your hope in the wrong things. Political illusions always end in disappointment by definition. What's true today was true then as well. Many people who shouted Hosanna on that day within a week would be shouting crucify him because that candidate that they put so much hope in that he was going to be the guy that delivered for them what they wanted, disappointed them very quickly because they didn't get what they want. They didn't get what they expected. Their political hopes were frustrated. They rejoiced at the triumphal entry, but it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. It wasn't what they were expecting. I don't want you to miss what they missed, so I have to point this out. There are two contrasts in the triumphal entry, two things people keep missing about Jesus, and we keep missing them to this day, so it's important to think about this. First, there's the contrast between the conquering horseman and the peaceable king. Like what they're seeing with their eyes should clue them in That this is not business as usual. It's not what you're expecting. When Jesus rides in on that donkey, the symbolism is about more than his humility. This is also a picture of the nature of his upside-down kingdom. He's saying something about the nature of the order that he will establish when he rides in, not on a charger, but on a donkey. You might say, that symbol has already been explained by Jesus. In fact, he's just finished explaining it in Matthew 20, when his disciples come to him jockeying for position in the kingdom, wanting to exercise authority over others. He explains to them that is not the way this is going to work. He says, you know that the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As long as your hope is in the wrong kingdom and you're playing by the wrong rules, then this peaceable king will never make sense to you because he's not using power the way you want it to be used to do the things you think need to be done. Jesus can only disappoint people whose hopes are tied up in that kind of political, physical kingdom. That's one contrast, but there's a second contrast. It's the contrast between political liberation and the sacrifice, death, and ransom that Jesus will perform to achieve spiritual peace. If you go back and look through Matthew's gospel, you're not going to find any place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says something like, the Romans are your problem and I'm here to drive them out. Jesus never says in the course of his ministry, the, the only thing that matters, the priority here is to get rid of our Roman overlords and any time wasted on any other problem, set that aside. We've got to focus on what really needs to be fixed. Never. In fact, just the opposite. The kingdom that Jesus sets himself in opposition to is not the kingdom of the Roman Caesars. The kingdom that Jesus defines himself in opposition to is the kingdom of sin and death, the spiritual reign of sin and death. And that reign is not symbolized by Rome. The physical manifestation of the reign of sin and death is not Rome. It's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. It's not the Pantheon. It's the temple. It's the temple. The focus of Jesus' criticism, the thing that has fallen short, the thing that he says must be resolved. It's here, not there. As we'll see, Ultimately, in chapter 24, all of it must come under judgments. Which means that if your hope is in the old covenant, if your hope is in the physical signs and not the spiritual reality that they pointed to, again, this peaceable king will never make sense to you because he's not doing the things you think need to be done. He's not building physical kingdoms. He's not overturning political orders. He's doing something deeper, something spiritual. But his answers will never work for you as long as you're asking questions that he didn't answer. Because we miss those two things, because we miss the difference between his kingdom and the kingdoms all around him, because we miss the reality that that his is a spiritual kingdom and not a physical one, there's a third contrast that follows. That's the contrast between Peter's confession in Matthew 16 and the answer at the end of this passage in verse 11 to the question, who is he? Who is this man? When Peter is asked, who is he? The answer is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When the crowds are asked, who is he? Oh, it's the prophet Jesus. He's from Nazareth. That's a nice answer, but it's not the same. It's not the same realization. What it says to us is, despite the enthusiasm, despite the celebration, the jury is still out as far as the crowd is concerned. Right? They seem maybe more baffled than confident. He's a prophet, but he's a prophet from this nowhere town of Nazareth. Instead of seeing that humble origin as a feature of the Messiah, they maybe perceive it more as a bug. It's too bad that he didn't have a more exalted origin. They don't get this Messiah. They don't understand what's going on. So there's a tension here, and it's a tension that we ought to savor. right? The fulfilled prophecy, the the ritual details, and the triumphal entry assure us that this is the real thing. There's not another Messiah coming. There's not an additional Christ. This is the one that Zechariah said was coming. This is the one that we were looking forward to. But the unmet expectations show that we don't know what our real problem is. And until we do know, we'll never understand how to fix it. If the solution is real, but it's not what you're looking for, then your understanding of the problem is what's at fault. You don't see your situation rightly. If you still think your problem is Rome, the reality is your problem is sin. And you've got to realize that before you can recognize who Jesus truly is. What you need, whether you realize it or not, is exactly who has arrived in Jesus Christ, the priest king that God has sent to reconcile you to himself, to make peace. If all we were left with was the tension, it would be troubling because, of course, we know that the, 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 the dark notes here only get worse as time goes on, that we're heading towards the crucifixion. But there is in this passage what I would say is a saving grace. It's interesting, when you look at the triumphal entry, this is such a famous moment in the life of Christ. The surprising thing is that Matthew's account is primarily about what other people do. It's it's primarily about how people perceive and react to Jesus. It's not about things that Jesus does. Jesus just sits on a donkey and and rides in, and then we're chronicled all around his actions, what happens around them. The fulfillment of the prophecy gives us certainty to the scene, but the enthusiasm of crowds comes and goes. So if all we had was that, we would be playing in a minor key here. But there is something else in this passage. Let's call it like a note of hope. And that's how it begins. That this entire scene has been set in motion by Jesus with clear instructions down to the details to his disciples. He gives the instructions. The disciples carry them out. They don't need to understand. They don't need to appreciate. All they need to do is obey. And when they run into obstacles, all they need to cling to is the Lord needs it and it will be done. That. The authority of Jesus is the saving grace in this account, because the triumphal entry is not about the tensions in the hearts of those who witnessed it. The triumphal entry is about the certainty of the salvation that Jesus brings when he enters the city of peace. Everyone else may have been uncertain, Every person you spoke to in that scene might have given you a different account of what had happened that day and what significance it had. Even the disciples might have given you unsatisfactory answers, but Jesus always knew. Jesus was always in charge, always in control, and everything that was happening, no matter how it was understood by others, was happening exactly as he had plans. In other words, rejoice because your king is coming. That's the thing. It's so easy to miss that, that the reason to rejoice, the reason to celebrate, the reason to cry out Hosanna is because the one who is coming is arriving. No, because the one who is arriving is king. That's the reason to rejoice, because you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to get the interpretation right. You don't have to clearly appreciate all of the nuance. You don't have to be able to connect all of the dots, because he can, and he does, and he is the king, and that is the assurance that the king has come. If Jesus is king, then you don't need all of the answers. You just need to sing Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. If Jesus is king, then you don't need to have it all figured out. You just need to have to know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when people ask, as inevitably they will, who is he? You can answer as Peter does. He's the son of God. He's the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who was promised to us. And that's all I need to know in order to rejoice and be confident in him. So, as we go forward in this series, we'll see a lot of things that will get discouraging and dark. Even Jesus will have things to say about the future that are unsettling and troubling and mysterious. But one thing that we can know for certain, even here, is that there is a confidence, there's a reason for rejoicing because he has arrived in order to make peace and he will do it the cross.